If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. It was one of the most remarkable about faces in American history. James Longstreet spent the Civil War as one of the leading generals in the Confederate Army. But after 1865, he became a supporter of Reconstruction and black voting, and even led an interracial force in battle against former Confederates in New Orleans. He was branded a race traitor by many Southerners who also sought to challenge his military record, but remained defiant until the last. In her new book, Professor Elizabeth R. Varon explains Longstreet's extraordinary life, seeking to understand the motivations behind his astonishing change of heart, she spoke to Rob Attar. So Liz, in your book, you memorably describe James Longstreet as a Confederate Judas. I wonder if you could explain what you mean by that phrase. Let me introduce James Longstreet. Longstreet is 
rather well known to aficionados of the American Civil War who have a generally have a sense of the, the the outlines of his story. So he was a very important Confederate general in America's Civil War, second only to Robert E. Lee in the Army of Northern Virginia, the principal army of the Confederacy, uh, a victor at many key battles, Lee's right-hand man or war horse, as Lee put it, a man completely committed, Longstreet was, to the Confederate cause, a product of plantation society, of the defense of slavery, and so on. So in some sense, an archetypal confederate. Longstreet is a Judas in the sense that in a very, very surprising and completely unlikely and quite remarkable move, he pivots after the Civil War, after Confederate defeat and surrender to U.S.-granted Appomattox, Uh, In 1867, two years after that surrender, as the U.S. Congress and American politics are sort of considering the prospect of reconstruction of a transformation of the defeated South, the modernization of the South, Longstreet embraces Congress's plan for reconstruction for such a transformation. And Congress's plan is a rather thoroughgoing one, the centerpiece of which is black voting to enfranchise African-American men who had been enslaved in the Confederacy uh, now in a post-slavery era to really create an interracial body politic in which African-Americans participate in governance in the South. So Longstreet, unlike the vast majority of other fellow Confederates, accepts the plan, the congressional Republican plan that centers on black voting and sort of pledges to sort of give it a try to comply. And in making this choice, he is essentially choosing to ally himself with the Republican Party at the time in this time in the 19th century. The Republican Party is the anti-slavery party in American politics, the party of Abraham Lincoln, of emancipation and abolition of the Union's victory in the war, uh, of Reconstruction. In other words, the Republican Party is is the party of all that white Southerners, ex-Confederates had loathed and feared and fought against. The opposition party, the Democrats, had been much more favorable to slavery and to Southern interests. And so in embracing the Republican Party, Longstreet renders himself in the eyes of former Confederates, defenders of slavery and of states' rights and the lost cause, uh, sort of romanticization of the Confederacy. He, he renders himself a, a Judas, a Benedict Arnold, a traitor, a race traitor in the eyes of those former Confederates who are opposed to change, opposed to Reconstruction, who want, in effect, to regain their power in the South and recreate a system as close as possible to the old system of slavery. And so the backlash against Longstreet from ex-Confederates, the people he had considered his own people before and during the war, is really uh, quite fierce. And in some sense, the most interesting bit of this story is that in the face of a fierce backlash in which ex-Confederates ostracize him, criticize him, say things like, we wish he had died in 1864 when he was grievously wounded in, in an important battle in, in Virginia, accuse him of being a race traitor as they see it. In the face of this backlash, he doesn't back away. He sort of doubles down. But what this means is that a decision in 1867 to accept Reconstruction, to accept black voting, to ally himself with the Republican Party becomes the beginning of a nearly 40-year career as a Republican Party operative and a very vocal and quite iconoclastic critic of the South, his own society. So he is a political maverick, a dissenter, a, a man 
who makes what I've called the most remarkable political about face in American history. There, there may be a, a more remarkable one, but I, I can't think of it. And the last thing I'll say in answer to that important first question is that Longstreet isn't the only former Confederate white Southerner to accept Reconstruction, but he is the highest ranking Confederate to do so. And so his example that he sets, uh, his willingness after having been really second only to Robert E. Lee in the Confederate military hierarchy, poses a greater threat to uh, white Southern orthodoxies than, than any of the other examples we can give of white Southerners who, who accepted Reconstruction. And as you say, this really is an incredible turnaround for Longstreet. He was one of the leading Confederate generals in the Civil War. Do we know how committed he was to the Confederate cause when the Civil War broke out? Was he a reluctant leader or did he passionately embrace the cause? That's an excellent question. And as you can imagine, the question of his loyalty is at the heart of this story uh, and of his loyalties, I should say. So to just carry the story forward a little bit before we go back to the secession era, after Longstreet embraces the Republican Party and embarks on this career as a, as a Republican political operative and a supporter of black voting and of this interracial governance in the South, he is turned on by the self-styled champions of the lost cause, this sort of cult romanticizing the Confederacy, who uh, not only abjure and condemn his politics, but who blame him for the South's defeat in the Civil War, for, as they see it, disobedience to Lee at Gettysburg, and for other military mistakes which spelled the South's doom. And as they blame him, they imply that he proved to be a, an inept general and even a disobedient general during the war because his heart had never been in the cause. In other words, they suggest that his embrace of the Republicans after the war was prefigured by a kind of ambivalence about the cause. They're wrong about that. And the fact that they're wrong just sort of ups the ante in this story in the sense that Longstreet was a very ardent Confederate. As you implied in your question, there were Confederate generals, some very important ones, who had been somewhat reluctant about secession, who didn't join on to the secession movement, taking the 11 southern states out of the Union until it was essentially a fait accompli. Longstreet wasn't one of those reluctant Confederates. He was uh, steeped in pro-slavery ideology from the time he was a young man. His uncle, Augustus Baldwin Longstreet, was one of the leading pro-slavery ideologues, defenders of slavery against uh, abolitionist activism in the pre-war period, just a sort of frothing defender of slavery, Augustus Baldwin Longstreet was. And this is the environment in which Longstreet is raised. And when Lincoln is elected in 1860 and southern states in the Deep South begin to secede, Longstreet really jumps on that bandwagon and volunteers his services to the Confederacy before he has even resigned his commission in the U.S. Army. He's a career soldier. He was educated at the country's expense at West Point, our premier military academy, before the war. He fought in the Mexican War and sort of cut his teeth militarily there. Uh, he was an officer in the United States Army, and he accepts Confederate service and then resigns from the U.S. Army. And all of this shows that he was quite and enthusiastic Confederate. Noting that, again, ups the ante in the sense that it becomes all the harder to explain why, given this quite deep commitment to the, to the Confederate cause and the defense of slavery, why he makes this about face after the war. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. 
Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. And before we come on to Longstreet's motivations for this really sort of surprising about phase, I wonder if we could just touch on one of the episodes in the Civil War that you referenced, which is Gettysburg, which is, of course, a pivotal moment in the Civil War and a pivotal moment for Longstreet. What do his critics accuse him of doing and why do you believe they're being unfair? So a a little bit of background. Longstreet, by the time of Gettysburg in July of 1863, again, had established a reputation as as one of the premier uh, generals in the Confederacy in the the eyes of white Southerners. He had fought uh, effectively and well in previous campaigns of the Army of Northern Virginia at the Seven Days, at Second Manassas, at Fredericksburg, Virginia, big, important battles. And what those battles had taught him or had reinforced for him were some lessons he learned as early as the Mexican War, was that it was best to fight on the tactical defensive, to occupy strong ground, high ground, to lure the enemy into a trap, prompt uh, the enemy to attack you in your stronger position from which you can then launch an effective counterattack. So this is Longstreet's philosophy going into, into Gettysburg. Gettysburg is Robert E. Lee's invasion of the North, second invasion, a first invasion had been turned back in Maryland in 1862, and the battle unfolds over three epically bloody days, July 1st, 2nd, 3rd uh, at Gettysburg. The Confederates have a good bit of success on the first day, but on the uh, second day, as they're contemplating the strategy for the second day, Lee proposes an assault on a strong federal position, high ground at Cemetery Ridge, and Longstreet has some doubts about that plan. He prefers to essentially flank the federal army, move around its left flank, get between it and D.C., find some good defensive high ground uh, which the Confederates can occupy to, you know, make more favorable their chances of turning back a, a Yankee attack. So he's not enthusiastic about Lee's plan uh, for the second day, but he yields to Lee the Confederates mount in the afternoon of the second, a, quite a, a massive attack on the Union position, uh, only to be essentially turned back and to set the stage for the third day of the battle in which Lee again proposes this time a sort of more coordinated all-out attack on the center of the federal line. And Longstreet, 
as he contemplates the prospects for success on this third day, is not just ambivalent, he's really fatalistically resigned to defeat at that point in the sense that he thinks Lee's plan for the third day is just wrongheaded, that the Confederates don't have enough men to attack what's now an even stronger Union defensive position. But he and his men launch Pickett's Charge, a famous offensive uh, maneuver, sort of storied piece of Civil War military lore, again, only to be turned back to spell their defeat and their eventual retreat back into Virginia. So the battle itself is dramatic. Longstreet has had ambivalence about the plan for the second day and, and real opposition to the plan on the third day. So after he becomes a Confederate Judas, after he, he adopts the Republican Party agenda after the war, some of Lee's acolytes begin in the early 1870s to accuse Longstreet of having willfully disobeyed Lee at Gettysburg, having disobeyed orders for a morning attack on the 2nd of July. There were no such orders. That's that's quite clear. For having been half-hearted in the attack on the second day and having botched his assignment in numerous ways and having betrayed Lee on the third day by failing to fight with the commitment and enthusiasm and good sort of tactical and strategic judgment that was necessary. And I can't tell you how much ink has been spilled over the last decades by people litigating and relitigating this charge. Does Longstreet deserve to be scapegoated for the Confederate defeat at Gettysburg? So my answer is no, uh, and I'm not alone in pointing out the following things. First of all, that there were many Confederate decisions uh, and much generalship that was questionable at Gettysburg. And others have noted that the Confederate cavalry commander, Jeb Stewart, and the other uh, corps commanders, Ewell and A.P. Hill, all performed poorly, and that Lee's decision-making, his offensive mindset there was ill-considered. We might also note that Longstreet's own take on his performance in the battle was that he had yielded to Lee. The theme of Longstreet's own writings on the battle is his deference to Lee His and Longstreet's argument that every move he made that delayed, for example, that crucial attack on the second day was made to maximize its success and with Lee's approval and authorization. So Longstreet did not see himself as disobedient. Longstreet wished that Lee had yielded to his advice, and there's some debate after the war about whether the two men had had a kind of pact not to fight offensively. Most people agree that there was no pact, but Longstreet did feel a little hurt that Lee had brushed aside his suggestions. But all the same, the the final takeaway on this Gettysburg debate, perhaps the most crucial thing for the story of his change in allegiances that comes later, is that at the end of the battle, and indeed at the end of the war, white Southerners, Confederates, did not believe him to be the scapegoat for the battle. They believed that there was plenty of blame to go around, that perhaps the lesson of the battle was that invading the North wasn't such a good idea. But his reputation was intact, a reputation among Confederates as a, a iconic military hero of the war was intact at the end of the war. And that tells us something about the motivations behind the latter-day post-facto attacks on his military reputation. They were absolutely politically motivated. Do we know what Longstreet's initial response was to the defeat of the Confederacy in 1865? I know two years later he made this about face, but how, how was he feeling in 1865? So in 1865, I would say that 
on the one hand, as a, as a commander leading Confederate troops, he, he really had a, a, a sort of last-ditch attitude. He fought ardently until Appomattox, until Lee's men are brought to heel by Grant on April 9, 1865. But in subtle ways, he was primed for peace. And what I mean by that is that, first of all, the war had brought a series of terrible personal blows to him. The the key thing here, the loss of three of his young children to scarlet fever in 1862, and that, that really shook his morale. He remained until the end of the war a believer in the Confederate cause as a sort of political project, but he lost confidence in the Confederacy over the course of the war. And he lost confidence because of what he felt was bad leadership, bad decision-making by the president, Jefferson Davis, and by Lee and others. He lost confidence because of, of terrible logistical woes. The Confederacy suffered his men uh, sort of constantly undersupplied. He lost confidence because of infighting, rivalry, and some petty double-dealing among Confederate military commanders. And he began to brood over the course of the war about what he saw as the failings of Southern society, his own society. And the principal failing he identified, he really already speaks to this in his in-the-moment wartime sources and then doubles down on it into some post-war writings, is the flaw of hubris. He believes that the Confederates were arrogant and that that arrogance was hurting them, that they were underestimating their enemies, that you should never underestimate your enemies in war. And that in the last two years of the war, a man was going to make them pay for that hubris. And that man was U.S. Grant, who becomes the commander-in-chief of the Union Army and then oversees its epic showdown with Lee uh, in Virginia in the last year of the war. So why is Longstreet so attuned to the doings of Grant? Grant and Longstreet had been dear friends at West Point before the war and in their army careers in the Mexican War and uh, on the frontiers afterwards. Longstreet had immense respect for Grant. He warned the Confederates often. He's, you know, this man will fight us every day until the end of the war. We should not underestimate him. He, again, he'll make us pay for our dysfunction was Longstreet's uh, position. And so when Grant does finally bring the Confederates to heel at Appomattox and offers the Confederates very magnanimous terms, Longstreet sees those terms through the lens of his friendship with Grant and his respect for Grant. Those terms essentially say to the Confederates, despite this war fought for the evil, abhorrent cause of slavery by the Confederates, the loss of 700,000 some Americans. You Confederates are free to go home, no reprisals, no penalty to pay if you are willing to lay down your arms and pledge your future allegiance to the Union, to the United States, and to its laws. Absolutely stunning leniency. I can't really think of a precedent in civil wars anywhere for that kind of leniency. What did Grant have in mind? Grant was hoping that his magnanimity would change hearts and minds, as we might put it today, that that Confederates would be sort of so overwhelmed with gratitude that they would be contrite and repent of their treason and of their political sins and and comply with a new order that the Union victory would bring. The vast majority of Confederates weren't the slightest bit contrite or uh, repentant and did everything they could to defy that new order. Longstreet, by contrast, really was a rare case of someone who accepted Grant's terms in the spirit in which Grant offered them. So Grant's message is, 
You all wanted the issues between North and South to be arbitrated by the sword. They have been. The union has won. And therefore, you all must yield. And Longstreet accepted that verdict of that arbitration, if you will, to a degree, and accepted the the war's end, the military defeat of the Confederacy as final to a degree that the vast majority of other Confederates did not. And and this really has fundamentally to do with his, his friendship with Grant, his respect for Grant. Here we come to the crux of the issue, really. Why does Longstreet make this about face when so many other Confederates don't do it? So you say it's partly because of his friendship with Grant, but what are the other factors at play, do you think? So the friendship with Grant is key. Part of what Longstreet is faced with at this moment in 1867 when he endorses the Republican plan is the decision about who to trust in this post-war landscape. So Lincoln is assassinated just days after the Union victory. His vice president is a man named Andrew Johnson, who had been a rare white Southern politician, a senator, to stick with the Union side during the war after Confederate secession. He was rewarded by Lincoln by being named his running mate during the war, in part because Lincoln wanted to build out his coalition of of pro-war supporters, and he felt that to put this Southern Unionist on the ticket would, would do that. Johnson had talked tough against secessionists, but when he became president, his own political identity as a white Southern Democrat really came to the fore, and Johnson was excessively lenient to former Confederates, pardoning them by the thousands, restoring their political rights, enabling them to retake control of the Southern state governments and pass laws, so-called black codes, that imposed on freed people, on formerly enslaved men and women, a forced labor system and a a set of legal disabilities and prescriptions very close to, to slavery. So Longstreet saw Johnson coddling the old Confederate elite and stoking the defiance of ex-Confederates, Confederates who had walked away from that battlefield at Appomattox, not accepting defeat as final, but sort of awaiting a new call to arms or determined to now use politics as the realm in which they would they would contend for the, the same principles of white supremacy and states' rights and so on that they had contended for during the war. So Longstreet sees Johnson as a divisive figure. Johnson, it didn't help that Johnson was a kind of volatile, vain, unpredictable, often inebriated sort of mess of a man. So you have Johnson as a choice on the one hand, and on the other hand, you have the man emerging as the leading Republican, U.S. Grant, Longstreet's dear friend, a man he trusts implicitly. Grant watched what happened on Johnson's watch, that is, ex-Confederates coming back into power and reimposing a racist forced labor system on the South. And doing so, I, I, I should add, this becomes an important theme for us, in part through legislation, but also in part through waves of extra-legal vigilante violence by white Southerners against formerly enslaved African-Americans. Longstreet sees this, and this doesn't seem to him to be a prescription for real peace. What Longstreet wants is peace. And he believes that the people on this political landscape who want peace are people like Grant, the victors in this scenario. 
Longstreet wants peace in part because the war has been devastating to his family. Again, that loss of his of his children. He wants to promise to his wife and his extended kin a pivot to a sort of peaceful and prosperous future. He wants peace because he, you know, felt that ultimately the Confederates had had lost because of their own moral failings and mismanagement, and that Union victory had pointed up the superiority of union society, of a society built on wage labor and, and economic modernization and all the rest. So he it, it, he's sort of choosing Grant over Johnson. That's part of the dynamic. But there's another piece of the puzzle, and this has been really completely overlooked by scholars and I think biographers uh, and is utterly vital and so very interesting. And that is Longstreet's decision to settle in New Orleans after the war. He scouts out some other locations, but he ends up in New Orleans, which is a very economically vibrant city. And he and many other ex-Confederates settle there. New Orleans is also uh, had been the home to a sort of wartime experiment in reconstruction occupied by the Union Army quite early in the war. And a setting in which we have a distinct African-American leadership class of Afro-Creole activists. Many of these men are mixed-race men of French and Spanish lineage, going back to Louisiana's days as a French and Spanish colony. Some don't have this uh, Afro-Creole heritage, but share with the sort of um, New Orleans leadership class there the experience of having been soldiers for the Union during the Civil War and even officers for the Union. Louisiana and New Orleans in particular is the site of a sort of brief uh, experiment in which the Union Army commissioned African-American men as, as officers to lead black regiments. So this leadership class of African-American activists in New Orleans is educated, assertive, ambitious, bold, visionary men, many of whom have been soldiers and indeed officers. They're, they're a key part of the Republicans' governing coalition as they try to implement Reconstruction after the war. And Longstreet is impressed by these men and drawn into alliance with them. And what he finds, crucially, is that while the ex-Democrats, the ex-Confederates, just condemn him in the really harshest terms for his willingness to give Reconstruction a try, the Republicans, white Northern Republicans and these black Republicans in the South, embrace him. And indeed, they let him sort of finesse the issue of loyalty. Confederates are starting to say, well, Longstreet, he's a traitor. He wasn't such a good general. While the Republicans are saying Longstreet was one of the great generals of the Confederacy. That's a useful idea to them, because, of course, the more prominent he was as a Confederate, the more prominent he can be as an example of repentance. The setting of New Orleans is an important part of the story, and Longstreet will become very active there. So, yeah, I'd be interested to explore a little more his views on race relations at the time. I mean, clearly Longstreet is very out of step with many former Confederates. But is it fair to say he's not quite a racial egalitarian as we might think of now? Oh, absolutely. He's by no means a racial egalitarian. And and it's important to understand that the Republican Party itself, again, the party of Lincoln and abolition and the enlistment of black soldiers and reconstruction, was a quite broad political spectrum. And on one end of it, the left, as we might say today, were, were people like Frederick Douglass and Charles Sumner and Thaddeus Stevens, men who really, truly believed in and fought for the full political, social civil and economic equality of African-Americans. 
Longstreet was not an egalitarian by their standards, let alone by our standards. But this, again, is one of the most fascinating aspects of the story. What Longstreet supported was the participation of African-Americans in the Republican coalition as constituents, as voters. And what he hoped was that whites would lead the coalition and black voters would, would support those white leaders and yield to them. He accepted that some black leadership of that coalition was not only necessary, but also desirable. So, so he accepted a, a limited leadership role for African-Americans in a coalition essentially controlled by whites as he saw it and imagined it. The key thing to note is that even this limited endorsement of black civil and political rights. Yes, blacks should vote. Yes, they should be part of the Republican coalition. Yes, they can assert some limited authority and leadership roles in deference to white Republicans. Even this limited challenge was enough to render him a Judas. Why? Because the men on the other side, Southern Democrats, ex-Confederates committed to uh, white supremacy, were unwilling for there to be any black political participation whatsoever, any inclusion of blacks in the polity, any exercise of leadership, any voting. And they tried to stamp out violently through violence and propaganda and fraud. They tried to stamp out any black political participation and to drive all Republicans out of Southern politics. So the fact that Longstreet was not a, an egalitarian in the sense that, for example, the white Republican senators Thaddeus Stevens and Charles Sumner were, but that he's still condemned by white Southerners just points up the extremism, the militancy of that white Southern Democratic anti-Republican position. What white Southerners demanded was a kind of ideological purity in defense of white supremacy and Longstreet's willingness for there to be limited black political participation was simply unacceptable to those who demanded that purity, if you will. And considering the many attacks that were made on Longstreet for his views, he must have been a man of a fair amount of courage to stick to his guns when he could easily have reversed his position or just faded away into the background. That's exactly right. And, and that's an utterly uh, key point. I think some prior Longstreet biographers have suggested that he wasn't as committed to sort of interracial politics as, as it might have seemed, that he allowed himself to be misrepresented, that there was a kind of core conservatism there. That's not a very persuasive argument because of the ways that Longstreet really displays a kind of courage that you've talked about and puts his principles into action. During the Reconstruction period, he leads an interracial militia of black and white uh, militiamen who are tasked by the Republican governor to defend the Republican government against white supremacist vigilantism and attempts to undermine this, this experiment in Reconstruction. And he, to a degree that surprised everyone, he really promoted black military service. He, he promoted black officers. He, he readied the militia for battle. He sung the praises of the African-Americans in its ranks. He had African-Americans serving as generals uh, under him in this militia. And he made common cause with this black leadership class in a huge host of ways. They were on uh, Republican Party committees together. They, they worked together to try to integrate the school system. He joined together with African-American politicians in celebrations of the milestones towards emancipation, the 15th Amendment, which enfranchised black men, for example. There was a huge celebration in New Orleans of its, of its passage that Longstreet helped to orchestrate. Uh, and so he really did make a commitment to his black allies. And that commitment 
in some ways the peak of it, but also the beginning of a, of a third phase in Longstreet's life, came in September 14th, 1874, in a street battle in New Orleans, not the first street battle, but the most significant one of this, of this period, a street battle on Canal Street there in which the white supremacist uh, ex-Confederate sort of paramilitary vigilantes called White Leagues, essentially akin to the Ku Klux Klan, mounted an attack on the lawfully elected Republican, interracial Republican government. Uh, Longstreet's militia defended the government against that attack and was overwhelmed. He was wounded again. Uh, again, it's impossible to sort of conjure the drama of this scene. Here is Longstreet leading African-American men against some of the Confederates he had formerly led. And those uh, insurrectionists in their coup attempt do briefly control uh, the government in Louisiana. The U.S. federal forces eventually come to the scene and, and restore the Republicans. But the attack sort of spells the beginning of the end of Reconstruction. The, the white Southern campaign of violence and propaganda and fraud will drive Republicans out of the South. And Longstreet is so traumatized by this, this pitched battle, September 14th, 1874, nearly a decade after the end of the Civil War, that he begins to disentangle himself from New Orleans politics and to build a new home and a new political base in rural Georgia, where he has some roots and some some uh, family. And in that last phase of his career, he somewhat steps away from the position he had taken in New Orleans. He continues to sort of quietly support black voting and some limited black office holding for Georgia uh, Republicans. But he really emphasizes more and more the theme of reconciliation between the North and South and sort of refashions himself as a, as a herald and a champion of reunion. I'd be interested to know how Longstreet has been remembered after his death in the sort of century or so following that. How has he been remembered both by... I suppose, in the former Confederacy, but also elsewhere in America and among African-Americans. So I would say that, again, overwhelmingly, those who, who know something about Longstreet are focused on his performance at Gettysburg and this question of whether he deserves to be a military scapegoat. And interest in that question was very much promoted by a wildly popular novel called Killer Angels about Gettysburg, published here in 1974, and a, and a movie followed uh, some decades later. And it really reopened this question for aficionados of the, of the Civil War, this uh, litigation of the, of the military record. Longstreet has recently sort of come back into the public consciousness in interesting ways tied to our sort of recent headlines. On the one hand, the reckoning with the memory of the Civil War and legacies of the Civil War as part of a broader racial reckoning in the United States after uh, events in Charleston and Charlottesville and elsewhere has prompted a number of people to observe that Longstreet is the exception that proves the rule when it comes to Confederate statues and memorials. Uh, we have had fierce debates in, in the U.S. about whether those statues should come down or stay up. And those who have argued that they should come down, and I've been, I've been one of them, have made the case that the Confederate statues to Lee and Stonewall Jackson and Jefferson Davis and so on represent the Confederate project of white supremacy and of perpetuation and extension and then post facto defense and romanticization of, of the slavery era. And the proof uh, of that, in a way, is the absence, or a proof, one of uh, endless numbers and forms of proof, is the absence in the South of statues to Longstreet. The Southern landscape was littered in the post-Civil War decades with statues of people like Lee, but no such statues of Longstreet 
uh, were erected, and that is because he was not useful as a symbol of white supremacy and the defense of slavery. And his conversion, his about face had rendered him again, a sort of Judas in the eyes of Confederates and someone who was uh, seen to challenge rather than to signify all of the kind of lost cause uh, defense of the Confederacy that that has remained such a potent and toxic part of, of American politics well into into the modern era. So in the public eye, in, in that sense, um, second observation sort of cued to uh, recent headlines is, of course, we had this January 6th insurrection attempt by supporters of Donald Trump to overturn a lawful election. And a number of commentators have noted that this was not the first such violent coup attempt in American history and that that street battle in New Orleans in 1874 that I described, the Canal Street battle, was such an attempt by white supremacists uh, in 1874. And one of the lessons or morals of that story is you have to hold insurrectionists accountable, because if you don't, you get what you got in the case of New Orleans, which is the reconstruction being undermined, the state falling back into the hands, again, of white Southern Democrats, and they're instituting this long period of Jim Crow segregation and prescription and disenfranchisement. There is, in a sort of broader sense, to my mind, too, one of the important things to note and legacies and lessons here is the complexity of the American South and of and of Southern identity and the elusiveness of reconciliation among Southerners. We've written and thought a lot about how the North and South became reconciled after the Civil War, but there remained a uh, fault lines, even with, within the South, most obviously African-Americans, for obvious reasons, rejecting sort of lost cause myth-making and promoting their own memory traditions of the Civil War. But among whites, too, you know, divisions have persisted. There were whites at the time of Longstreet's death and in the decades afterwards who saw him as somewhat rehabilitated, were willing to separate his military and his political record or to give some grudging respect to his political record. But his critics persisted in blaming him for Confederate defeat and uh, abjuring his post-war politics and continued to do so long after his death. So Longstreet has a very turbulent afterlife. His second wife steps forward to try to defend him as various people have done. But part of the message here, again, is the complexity of the American South and the elusiveness of reconciliation between some contending elements among Southerners. So it's a story in part because he lived so long and because his life had these distinct phases and because he left such a huge sort of body of work, a record of speeches and long memoir and various other sources. It's a life that has a lot to teach us about these themes of loyalty and treason and victory and defeat and progress and reaction. That was Elizabeth R. Barron. Longstreet, the Confederate general who defied the South, is out now, published by Simon & Schuster. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. Thank you.